Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the late 1950s, a small support group for people experiencing drug addiction gathered in a grimy Californian flat. The group would grow to obtain acres of land, have a Hollywood film made about it, and then become a well-funded utopian society throughout the late 60s and early 70s, before declaring itself a religion in 1974. This organisation would attract stars like Leonard Nimoy and Jane Fonda to stop by and participate in its so-called game, and eventually break up married couples, force men to have vasectomies and women to have abortions, amass assets worth tens of millions of dollars, and become entangled in a web of violence. It was named Synanon, and journalist Matt Novak called it one of the most dangerous and violent cults America had ever seen. Its leader, Charles Diedrich, is often credited with coining the phrase, today is the first day of the rest of your life. Welcome to Season 2 of Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into our second season, I want to extend a big thanks to everyone who's been downloading and listening to the podcast. Since finishing Season 1 earlier this year, the podcast's reach has continued to skyrocket and it's hugely motivating to hear from many of you that you've been enjoying it. Now that 60% of listeners are based in the United States – and the top state for downloads is California, I thought I'd begin this season with an episode about a formerly California-based organisation. I also travelled to San Francisco, Marin County and Oakland last month, and researched and wrote a lot of this episode whilst I was there. And for those who've mentioned they'd like more episodes of the podcast, I'd love to be able to make more. But at the moment I'm fitting in podcasting around my day job, so it's going to be a part-time exercise until I can figure out how to make it sustainable. What that means is, if you or anyone you know is interested in advertising on the show, sponsoring an episode, or supporting us on Patreon, these things will help buy me the time to work more on the project. Further information is available on the podcast website at ltaspod.com, where there's now also merch available like tote bags and buttons. There's another really easy way to support the podcast as you like without having to do much. 
and that's by listening on the Radio Public app. They'll bookend the show with their own ads and pay a revenue share to the podcast creators, so it's a nice and easy arrangement for independent podcasters like me. No pressure though, and no matter what, I'm really dedicated to telling these stories, so I'll be continuing to make Let's Talk About Sects, and hopefully one day down the line I'll be able to produce even more content for you. And I can't tell you how grateful I am to the wonderful people who are already supporting me on Patreon. My website hosting fees are now covered by you, which is incredible. A quick content warning before we begin. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, and in this episode they include manipulative behaviours, physical assault, references to suicide and emotional abuse. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. As a refresher for Season 2, for the purpose of this podcast, we're defining a cult as a group 1 – dominated by a charismatic leader or leadership that closely controls its members, particularly with regards to their exercising their free will to disengage with the group and its ideology. Two, who believes that they exclusively have access to the truth and the rest of the world is wrong. And three, who are largely secretive about the workings of their society to outsiders. Charles Edwin Diedrich, also known as Chuck, was born to Agnes and Charles Diedrich on the 22nd of March 1913 in Toledo, Ohio. Agnes was a singer, and the father Charles was named after was a promoter who suffered from alcoholism. He died in a car accident when Charles was just four. Then when Charles was eight, he also lost his brother to influenza. Four years after this, Agnes remarried to a man Charles was said to detest. Charles himself was a heavy drinker from his mid-teens, and after graduating high school, he dropped out of the University of Notre Dame and then the University of Toledo with poor grades. By 1944, he had secured work for Gulf Oil as a travelling salesman, married his first wife, Chilnessa McKeon, who he'd met at the company, and had a son, Chuck Jr., when he contracted meningitis and fell into a two-week coma. After a drug that had only fairly recently been made available, penicillin, saved his life, Charles moved his family to Los Angeles. In the aftermath of his illness, he was left with partial deafness in his left ear, partial paralysis of his face, and a constant sneer. He had also become dependent on benzodrine, which was widely used for a variety of medical conditions at the time. Charles separated from his first wife and remarried to Ruth Jason, with whom he had a daughter, Cecilia, who was known as J.D. His second wife encouraged him to join Alcoholics Anonymous, which he did in 1956, but it wasn't enough to save the marriage, which dissolved shortly afterwards. Charles, meanwhile, was enamoured with the group support setup and became a fervent devotee of AA. He was a popular speaker at meetings due to his direct and forthright way of addressing others. In 1957, he underwent an experimental treatment at the University of California, Berkeley, that involved administering LSD to alcoholism sufferers, and said that he became a different person after the experience, which he credited as the most important of his life in a 1962 interview. 
Around this time, Charles found himself with a copy of transcendental philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson's 1841 essay entitled Self-Reliance. The themes of Emerson's essay are around individualism, nonconformity, advocating self-reflection and self-confidence so as to avoid the distractions of community, and encouraging spirituality instead of any adherence to organised religion. Quote, And truly it demands something godlike in him who has cast off the common motives of humanity and has ventured to trust himself for a taskmaster. High be his heart, faithful his will, clear his sight, that he may in good earnest be doctrine, society, law to himself, that a simple purpose may be to him as strong as iron necessity is to others. Herman Melville called Emerson's ideas gibberish, and Moby Dick is often read as a criticism of them, pointing out the dangers of an inflated sense of self in the character of Ahab and his obsessive quest to hunt down the whale, as well as the dangers of community in action in Ishmael, who is wary of Ahab but submits to the charismatic captain along with the rest of the crew, contributing to their eventual demise. Chuck Diedrich was far more enamoured with the text than Herman Melville. Charles's AA talks began to take a less religious and more psychological and philosophical bent, and they appealed to a number of people at the meetings. He also started to become more sceptical of the softer, supportive approach of AA, as well as the fact that they didn't work with those addicted to drugs, only those experiencing alcoholism. Narcotics Anonymous did exist at the time, but it wasn't as ubiquitous as AA. Charles decided to lead his own groups outside of AA that would welcome drug users, and quit his job as a model maker to embark on a personal mission to rehabilitate those with addiction. In a 1980 deposition, a quote from Charles is as follows. I say this with as much humility as I am capable, which isn't very much, but when I sit down and start to talk, people start gathering. It just happens, I can't stop it. End quote. Getting together at Charles's fairly squalid apartment, the group was initially known as the Tender Loving Care Club. I've read a few stories of where the name Synanon came from. The first is that an early member stumbled over the words seminar and symposium. The second is that it's a combination of the prefix sin indicating togetherness and anon indicating the unknown. Another is that it means sins anonymous, a variation on alcoholics anonymous to indicate its broader remit. Whatever the truth, Synanon is the name they would embrace from 1958. At the core of Synanon's approach to rehabilitation was the idea of tough love, embodied in a process that they called the game. The game entailed everyone sitting in a circle and one person being on the receiving end of criticism, accusations and interrogation from the other meeting attendees. People were allowed to say anything within the context of the game, and it didn't even need to be based in truth. It is described by Synanon member Steve Simon in a 1978 journal article as follows, quote, The Synanon game is a multidimensional, free-flowing approach to breaking down communication barriers, a setting for philosophical, business and personal exchange, lasting anywhere from one hour to seven days at a stretch, and involving from eight to twenty-five people, end quote. The New York Times called it a form of aggression therapy, in which participants vent deep and often angry feelings about each other in an effort to define and restructure character. 
Journalist and lawyer Paul Morantz, whose life would become heavily intertwined with Synanon and who you'll hear more about later, said that the game, quote, could be considered a therapeutic tool likened to group therapy or a social control in which members humiliated one another and encouraged the exposure of one's innermost weaknesses, or both. Members were to confess in games and no secrets were allowed, end quote. In practice, it usually took the form of verbal abuse of some kind. It was generally full of vitriol, and participants used language that they might find completely unacceptable in their everyday lives. Sociologist Richard Offshore was studying the group, and attended sessions of the game, trying not to bring too much attention to himself. He told David and Kathy Mitchell for the book the three later authored together, The Light on Synanon, It is difficult to make you understand how emotionally devastating that can be. It's a tidal wave of hatred. The first time it hits you, it absolutely destroys you. If you were on the receiving end, you'd want to turn it all around onto someone else as fast as possible, or you'd likely end up breaking down in some way. The only rule was no physical violence or threat of violence. Charles called the game an emotional bath. Artist and art professor Philip Andrew Lewis, who spent two years at Synanon as a teenager, told the San Francisco Chronicle that people describe it as psychic murder. Outside of the game, Synanon members were expected to be supportive, kind and helpful to each other, whilst inside the game it was quite the opposite. Members were expected to take part in the game three times a week as part of their treatment. They were to go cold turkey on their addictions, and there was no medicinal component to the Synanon approach to rehabilitation. This approach doesn't seem to have been based on much more than Charles's whims. Certainly he had no background in therapy or research, aside from his personal experiences with AA, but the meetings were attracting more and more people who seemed to get something out of the unorthodox confrontations and otherwise encouraging community. From Charles's rundown apartment, the group upgraded to a $100 a month Ocean Park storefront next door. Charles registered Synanon as a not-for-profit in 1958. When the storefront was demolished after inspectors deemed it not up to code, they managed to move into a vacant National Guard building on the beach at Santa Monica, and Synanon had the space to become a residential program. The rehabilitation process was meant to last two years, and upon graduation, the participant would be expected to gain a job and home in the outside world, or a role within the organisation itself. Neighbours at Santa Monica weren't too keen on having Charles's so-called dope fiends move in en masse to their neighbourhood, however, and reported Synanon to the authorities. Charles was practising without any form of licence and was arrested. Rather than vacating the property as a condition of his bail, Charles chose to go to jail. His clear devotion to his cause prompted a wave of support for the renegade, who was seen as a martyr. Save Synanon advocates pushed for an exemption from health licensing laws, and California Governor Edmund Pat Brown granted it in 1961 by signing Bill AR-2626 on the proviso that the Medical Board oversee Synanon's activities and create regulations. Charles would reject every regulation put forward, and discussions between Synanon and the Medical Board would break down. 
yet somehow Synanon would continue to operate. It takes a certain amount of arrogance to reject any oversight from the medical community. Charles either felt that he knew better than the trained professionals, or he didn't want their scrutiny for some other reason. Perhaps it was some combination of the two. Attorney and journalist Paul Morantz claims that Bill AR2626 went on to cause decades of damage and trauma by allowing many more facilities, mostly youth residences and programs, to operate without proper checks and balances, and that its harm would only be curtailed in 2016 by Pat Brown's son, Governor Edmund Brown Jr., who signed Bill SB524, which conceded that, quote, it is the role of the legislature to ensure proper licensing and regulation of residential facilities for the protection and care of all citizens. Charles's jail time brought Synanon a fair amount of publicity. The group had positive write-ups in the Los Angeles Times, the Los Angeles Mirror, Time Magazine, and the New York Times. Life Magazine published a 14-page photographic spread. Off the back of this, the organisation managed to attract greater notoriety, support, and monetary donations, which could be convenient tax write-offs for companies due to Synanon's non-profit status. Hollywood stars even began to stop by Synanon House for parties, which were said to be a good time even without substances, since there were so many talented musicians trying to get sober. Some of the A-list drop-ins even participated in the game. Charlton Heston, Jane Fonda, Leonard Nimoy and sci-fi writer Ray Bradbury were a few of the better-known visitors in the early 60s. Charles's rejection of state regulations was based on his assertion that government schemes were having no success in curing drug addictions, so he insisted that he had to be free to try his own methods without imposed rules. He would claim that his methods were achieving upwards of an 80% success rate, a completely unverifiable statistic that was nonetheless reported in Time magazine. Even politicians were starting to look favourably upon the work of Synanon, with Connecticut Senator Thomas Dodd quoted as saying in 1962 that, There is indeed a miracle on the beach at Santa Monica. It's fair to say that Synanon's methods did work for a number of people, and many claim it showed them a path back into society. At the time, there were few people willing to take on those Charles referred to as dope fiends, and their options were limited. There was some good work happening, it can't be denied, and many working with Charles had noble motives. Day-to-day life in Synanon involved hard labour and the game, but also art classes and lectures as well as coffee, cigarettes and peanut butter sandwiches available to all. In The Light on Synanon, Richard Offshay points out that while life outside the game was pleasant, misdeeds that were uncovered in a session had effects on that life. Members could be given harder jobs and moved to less desirable residences. Plus, anything that came up once would usually stick and become a repeated criticism in future games. Quote, By constantly reminding members of their previous troubles, Synanon was able to make many members doubt they could survive if they left Synanon. 
There was a mantra repeated each day by members. Please let me first and always examine myself. Let me be honest and truthful. Let me seek and assume responsibility. Let me understand rather than be understood. Let me trust and have faith in myself and my fellow man. Let me love rather than be loved. Let me give rather than receive. To me and to many, there's a wonderful sentiment to a lot of this, and it's easy to see some appeal. But looking closer, there's also a definite de-emphasis on advocating for one's own needs and on examining the motives of others too deeply. In 1965, a million-dollar budget Hollywood movie was made called Synanon, featuring Eartha Kitt as Betty, Charles's third wife, an ex-addicted resident in treatment he'd married in 1960. Interracial marriages were still somewhat contentious at the time, and Synanon was quite progressive in this respect. The film was shot with the organisation's full cooperation at Synanon House in Santa Monica. The storyline is essentially a tragic love triangle with addiction themes thrown in, The New York Times and Variety gave it positive write-ups, and Charles was involved in the production as a technical advisor. In the mid-60s, Synanon started buying up land in California, and over the next decade would acquire 3,300 acres in Marin County, the impressive Club Casa del Mar right on the beach at Santa Monica, now a hotel starting at around US $500 for a night, and 2,000 acres in Tulare County. It ran institutions in San Francisco, Oakland, Los Angeles, San Diego, and Detroit. Ex-addicted residents would graduate to treat incoming residents, utilising their ability to really understand what they were going through. By this stage, researchers and psychologists were studying Synanon's methods and getting heavily involved with its institutions. Still today, the tough love approach of Synanon is credited with influencing any number of treatment methodologies currently in use. A quick note here that there is still a great deal of argument in the scientific community about the causes of addiction and the best methods of treatment, but most psychologists would agree that a multitude of factors lead to addiction, including adverse childhood experiences, life circumstances, genetics, stress and more, or any combination of these depending on the individual. That is to say that there can be physical, emotional and environmental aspects, and treatment should be responsive to the individual's particular situation. In 1967, Charles contradicted his previous claims and decided that his program was not actually a success at all, announcing that in order for residents to avoid relapsing, they needed to stay in the community rather than graduate. Around this time, methadone clinics were seeing some positive results, and the Synanon method was no longer at the forefront of drug addiction treatment models. Charles saw the need to shift his focus. Synanon was now moving into its second phase, a utopian society. The United States, and California in particular, has a history of attempts at utopian societies. To an Australian, it seems like a pretty out-there idea, but at the tail end of the 1960s on the US West Coast, this wasn't such an outlandish proposal. Synanon had already started accepting non-drug-addicted residents, who were drawn to the group's way of life and were paying to participate in the game. They were known as squares or lifestylers. 
They were allowed to reside with Sinanon but work outside jobs if they gave a good portion of their earnings to the organisation. By 1968, a decade after its formation, the not-for-profit was attracting $2.5 million annually in donations alone and was running businesses including a gas station and a merchandising company that sold Sinanon-branded pens and other promotional items. You can sometimes still find some on eBay. Workers in Sinanon businesses weren't paid or were only given a small token amount per month and contributed their labour as part of their rehabilitation initially and later as their contribution to the alternative lifestyle setup. Sinanon received a single donation of $1 million from one wealthy member and another member gave over his mortgage company. The organisation, of course, wasn't paying any taxes due to its non-profit status. During this phase of Sinanon's existence, from the late 1960s into the mid-1970s, there were distinct shifts away from its original purpose. Yet there were many within its ranks who wanted curing addictions to remain the main focus of the organisation. Charles had some participate in extra intense sessions of the game for a 72-hour stretch, offering them relief from their torment once they came around to his changed vision. By the late 1960s, members were being moved around often to different Synanon facilities depending on community and job requirements, and were told it was to accustom them to change as well as keep them from becoming too attached to physical spaces. According to Rod Jansen, who wrote The Rise and Fall of Synanon, A California Utopia, by 1969 there were 1,414 Synanon residents and 5,000 to 6,000 game players. When Charles decided to give up on his three-pack-a-day smoking habit in 1970, he also decided that Synanon would be smoke-free for everyone. This happily saved the organisation one of its major ongoing monetary costs, though it definitely cost them a number of members. It's another example of how everything could change to suit one man's whims. Also in 1970, Betty Diedrich was involved in implementing a new policy whereby expectant mothers would reside in a facility called the hatchery from their seventh month of pregnancy and remain until their baby was six to nine months old, at which point they'd have to leave them to be raised in the facility and may only see them once a week in the years following. Betty herself didn't have any children, but Charles had taken custody of his daughter J.D. after his ex-wife was killed by her partner. Both his daughter and son, Chuck Jr., would go on to important jobs within the Synanon organisation. While Charles claimed to want out of the dope fiend side of the business, Synanon representatives in New York City were reported by the New York Times to have recruited 550 drug-addicted people to join the program at their own expense over a five-week period in 1971. Their average age was 19 to 20. There's some speculation that the lifestylers didn't have the dedication to Synanon that Charles had found in those with drug addiction. Again, these residents were either paying good money to be there, or were providing their labour for next to nothing. Charles was on a massive salary. He was quoted as saying, We are in the people business, just exactly as if we were building Chevrolet axles. Headshaving had begun in Synanon as a punishment for relapsing with drugs or alcohol. Now it served as penance for any error. The film director George Lucas was shooting his directorial debut THX 1138 in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1971. The dystopian sci-fi was developed from his USC student short and is set in a future where people's emotions are suppressed by drugs and society is under the control of an android police force. 
In the film, citizens all have shaved heads and dress identically, apparently to enforce equality. Many of the extras featured in the movie were recruited from Synanon. The film didn't achieve box office success at the time, but many now describe it as a cult classic. The organisation at this point was receiving juvenile delinquents who were getting referred by courts from around the country or being placed by family members directly. Being in the people business, Synanon was happy to receive them. To deal with the young residents, Charles created something that he called the Punk Squad. Here his tough love came into full force and the kids were subjected to boot camp style treatment. When this didn't seem to have the desired effect... Charles reneged on one of Synanon's core rules. Violence began to form parts of the organisation's treatment plans. Children are reported to have been physically abused as punishment, and were of course also subjected to the psychological impacts of the game. During this period, Charles implemented a policy referred to as containment, which limited Synanon members' communication with outsiders. In 1971, Synanon would insist all children be removed to one location on their Marin County land. This was a step too far for a number of members, and reportedly a couple of hundred left as a result. Others bought into the idea, however, which was positioned as a rejection of the nuclear family in favour of a supportive community environment for children to grow up in. It was also promoted with a feminist slant, as freeing up women's time from traditional gendered child-rearing concerns. That this happened to free up their time to contribute their labours to Synanon's businesses and administrative functions was a happy coincidence. There are a number of online message boards where former Synanon members share their stories. Some are public and some are private, and I've read multiple anonymous posts that detail some shocking treatment. Due to their anonymity, they're difficult to verify but allegations by those who claim to have had first-hand experience in the punk squad are especially disturbing. Please skip ahead a minute if this may be triggering for you. There are recollections of children in their mid-teens being stripped naked and beaten in front of the other residents for discretions that included attempts at suicide and escape, teenage girls and boys being punched in the face and stomach by adult men, games lasting 36 to 72 hours without food or sleep, and former members whose lives were impacted forever by their traumatic stays of six months or more. Comments on the Cult Education Institute website include, quote, I would never have my worst enemy experience the things I went through. I'm still living with the memories of all the trauma I had to deal with for the year and a half I lived there. And, quote, Synanon devastated my life and destroyed any faith I had in the human race. I have recovered as much as a person can and lead a productive life today, but it took a lot of years to pull it off. It was pure and simple a nightmare. And finally, quote, By speaking out, I stand with hundreds of others who were affected by what started out as a good idea, but became a monster. Other former members speak only of positive impacts to their life, and there are suggestions that the disturbing behaviours were limited to the punk squad and the later years of the organisation's existence. Attorney and writer Paul Morantz points out that with Synanon, AA and various other approaches, quote, 
In reality, who was cured depended on how much each wanted it, and that generally holds true in all programs. End quote. This line of thinking suggests that those who benefited perhaps gave too much credit to the group for their rehabilitation, and not enough to their own strength of mind and ability to change. Ultimately, their dedication to the method often helped convince others of its infallibility. Then the violence started to filter into other aspects of Synanon's workings. Charles was beginning to face a lot of tax issues now that Synanon was undertaking so many activities outside of rehabilitation, and its non-profit status was coming under question. It was time for the organisation to shift gears once again. In 1974, Synanon declared itself a religion and became the Church of Synanon. There was a throwaway question as to who would be considered God in this church. In 1975, a group of men made a building error hanging a beam at a Synanon property. As penance, they shaved their heads, the routine punishment. When other male members heard that Charles Diedrich himself was one of the newly bald, all 850 of them shaved their heads in solidarity. Following this, all 500 Synanon women also had their heads shaved. Marianne Wattle told the Daytona Beach Morning Journal, quote, we did it to get into our guts that we are independent and free, and that it's no more humiliating for a woman to be bald than a man. End quote. From here on in, all incoming Synanon residents would have their heads shaved. Also in 1975, local Marin County rancher Alvin Gambanini was attacked in his truck by Synanon members for interfering in their affairs. They managed to knock out one of his teeth before he got away. Alvin and his wife Doris sometimes let young escapees have a meal and a bed before informing the authorities and buying the kids a bus ticket home. Alvin would later tell the Point Reyes Light that tens of young people came to them over the years, between the ages of 11 and 20, and every one of them said that the adults at Synanon had told them the local ranchers would shoot them. Quote, One girl came in here at two in the morning, and she told me, What have I got to lose? In a surprising fact to many, Charles had a strong relationship with union leader and civil rights activist Cesar Chavez, and had donated money to support his migrant farm workers' union. He advised Chavez in the late 1970s to incorporate the game into his own practices, when the unionists' Proposition 14 was defeated in a California vote, and Chavez felt that his members needed to get their act together. At one point, Charles brought a contingent of Synanon residents to a union meeting and instructed them to set up the room. In his book, From the Jaws of Victory, The Triumph and Tragedy of Cesar Chavez and the Farm Worker Movement, Matthew Garcia quotes unionist Cynthia Bell, All of a sudden these bald-headed people, men and women, poured in with their white outfits. They worked in silence and in unionism, setting up within minutes the sound system stage. Caesar was smiling and also observing in silence. Then they left as quickly as they came. I was just sitting there and all these mixed emotions going through my mind trying to figure out what this was leading to. Not once did these people make eye contact with us. End quote. Chavez was said to tell his followers that that was how he wanted them to be. 
it could be argued that this was symptomatic of the demise of another group that had achieved many good things, but perhaps at its end became too much about one man. In 1976, People magazine printed an article about Synanon entitled Chuck Diedrich Still Rules Synanon, but now he has 1,300 subjects and a $22 million empire. The organisation was reported to now own 10 planes, 300 vehicles, 21 boats and an airstrip. The Badger property, where Charles and Betty lived in luxury in Tulare County, was known as the Home Place and took 50 residents at a time on its 360 acres, which included stables, a swimming pool, and a massive communal bathroom. From the People article again, quote, On each bedside table is a special radio on which the occupant can, among other things, listen in on any phone calls being made anywhere in the Synanon system. This system was known as The Wire, and Charles would broadcast messages over it constantly. Synanon members could also listen in to game sessions, some of which were televised internally as well. One of the most telling parts of the People article is where journalist Barbara Wilkins explains how Charles likes to sit down after dinner with an undemanding book or movie, and quotes him as saying, I avoid like poison anything that can improve me. I'm satisfied with the way things are. End quote. People interviewed a woman who said she was too afraid of Charles to have her name published but her words will have a familiar ring to anyone who's listened to much of this podcast's first season. Quote, Sometimes Chuck is extraordinarily compassionate and kind, but at other times he's cruel and vindictive. You never know which way he will swing. On July 2nd, 1976, the San Francisco Examiner agreed to pay Synanon Incorporated $600,000 to settle a libel suit. Synanon was suing the examiner for $32 million in response to articles published in 1972 that had accused the organisation of being the racket of the century. The examiner, published by the Hearst Corporation, also published a front-page apology. Meanwhile, the opening words of the People magazine piece were about Charles considering a ban on pregnancies in the community. Charles told People magazine, I don't believe that celibacy itself would produce anything we want at this time, but I can see some good coming out of childlessness. Maybe only a selected few, an elite core, should have babies. I don't know yet what is best for our burgeoning causes. In the year following the article, 1977, he would follow through with the idea. Synanon began to pressure male members into having vasectomies and pregnant women into having abortions. Anyone who resisted would be on the receiving end in regular sessions of the game until they would capitulate. One woman is reported to have been four months pregnant when she was influenced into having an abortion. Charles himself didn't have a vasectomy for some reason, and the sterilizations were a step too far for a number of Synanon members again who left the group. This same year, Charles was reported to have taken a half million dollar pre-retirement bonus payment from his non-profit organisation. Then later in 1977, Charles's wife Betty passed away. While Betty was complicit and even instrumental in many of the decisions Charles made about the running of Synanon, there are those who would say that this is where things went really bad. In the aftermath of his grief, Charles soon married his fourth wife, former teacher and Synanon volunteer Ginny Scorin, 
and then decided that all married couples in Sinanon should separate and be matched with new partners, chosen by him. While Sinanon was undertaking sterilisation of members and mass remarriages, attorney Paul Morantz was finishing up a class action lawsuit for alcoholism sufferers who'd effectively been incarcerated against their will. They were taken off the streets and drugged up on Thorazine in order for nursing homes to defraud the government of their treatment costs. He achieved a settlement in the suit, and off the back of this was approached by a man who couldn't find a way to extract his wife from Sinanon. Frances Wynne was being moved around and told that her husband Ed didn't want to see her. Whilst at whichever facility he managed to track her down, Ed was informed that he wasn't able to see Frances. He had gone to the police and written numerous letters to politicians, but no one seemed to be able to help him, claiming there was little to be done about a woman who'd seemingly chosen to enter the Synanon program. Paul Morantz couldn't say no to the distraught Ed, and promised him he'd get his wife out. Little did he know at the time what he was getting himself into. He told Matt Novak for Gizmodo in 2014, That was the end of the life that I thought I was going to live. Synanon was ramping up its violence as it related to outsiders. On the 11th of November 1977, a trucker named Ron Eidson was pistol-whipped in his own front yard and in front of his wife and children after apparently cutting off a Synanon vehicle on the highway and the organization's weapons cache was reported to have grown, with FBI estimates putting its worth now at The Point Rays Light is a local weekly newspaper of Western Marin County, established in 1948 as the Baywood Press and with a current circulation of 4,000. In 1975, its circulation was 1,700 when it was acquired by Dave and Kathy Mitchell. Three years later, in 1978, they were receiving numerous tip-offs about violent incidents at Synanon and started publishing investigative reports into the organisation. It's in this period that ex-members became known as splittees and were increasingly the subject of violent attacks. On the 20th of March 1978, ex-member Tom Cardinal took his newlywed wife to a Synanon property to show her where he'd once lived. He was accused of being a spy, tied to a pole and severely beaten up by Synanon members. In June of 1978, Paul Morantz helped Ernestine White secure a court order to extract her three grandchildren from Synanon after their mother, her daughter, passed away whilst still a part of the organisation. In spite of the order, Synanon refused to hand over the children until police were sent in to bring them out. Synanon had by this point created a unit called the Imperial Marines, with commando and martial arts training, Charles claiming it was for their own protection. On the 21st of September 1978, 
ex-Synanon member Philip Ritter, had been trying to get his daughter out of the organisation and was viciously attacked by two men from the Imperial Marines, Alan Hubbard and Joseph Musico. They came upon Philip in his driveway, hitting him in the face with wooden mallets before fleeing the scene. He was seriously injured and hospitalised in a coma for a week, but did survive. The perpetrators weren't apprehended until they had managed to cause further damage, however. Paul Morantz had won $300,000 in damages for Ed and Francis Wynne, having eventually succeeded in getting Francis out of Synanon. It turned out they didn't really want her there anymore, considering her acute mental health issues, but Paul had been clever in a waiver they'd insisted he write to get her out, absolving Synanon of any responsibility for releasing Francis rather than for her time in their care. His name had now become well-known within Synanon, and ex-members would come to him and tell him that he was coming up often over the wire. Charles Diedrich wanted harm to come to Paul Morantz. On the 10th of October, 1978, Paul put his hand into his letterbox, which was built into the wall next to his front door, and pulled it out with a deadly rattlesnake attached to it. He told author Roy J. Harris, quote, I actually saw the head strike out and bite me. As it happened, my left hand swung into the air, and the snake went into the air and landed on my floor. In shock, Paul quickly shut the 4.5-foot snake inside his house, fearing for his dogs outside, ran out the back door, and screamed to his neighbour, who managed to apply a tourniquet and most probably saved his life. The Diamondback was killed by emergency services who attended the scene, and they noticed that its rattles had been removed. Paul was hospitalised for six days. He had previously asked his neighbours to keep an eye out, knowing he was in danger, and they'd written down the number plate of a suspicious vehicle seen in the area on the day of the attack. It was registered to Synanon. Two Synanon men, 20-year-old Lance Kenton and 28-year-old Joseph Musico, were arrested shortly afterwards. On the 19th of October, the Point Reyes Light published five articles on Synanon, alleging that Charles Diedrich had been calling for an attack on Paul Morantz and interviewing former Synanon president Jack Hurst. Jack had declined to be interviewed previously, but following what had happened to Paul Morantz, he worried he'd be next and was ready to talk. His guard dog had also been killed and left hanging on his property. Dave Mitchell of the Point Reyes Light later wrote that he had been trying to warn police that Paul was being targeted, but hadn't been able to convince them to do anything about it. Pat Lynch went to Marin County to report on Synanon for NBC in November. She and her crew were surrounded by bald-headed Synanon members and intimidated on public land. They secured the use of a helicopter to get some overhead shots of the Synanon property for their story, and found themselves being shot at. Pat was shocked to find the story didn't air on nightly news that evening. She later found out that Synanon had reached the network executives first, who also held out on airing the investigative work she'd been doing about the People's Temple. On the 17th of November 1978, over 900 people died in Guyana at the People's Temple Agricultural Project, also known as Jonestown. As a quick aside, if you want to hear more about that group, I highly recommend listening to Case Files' three-part series, which is their 60th case. But in 1978, all of a sudden, another group with a big following that had armed itself and which many referred to as a cult couldn't continue to be ignored. 
Charles's penchant for recording messages for members over the wire certainly helped investigators with their task. In the following days, the LAPD seized a tape recording he had made for Synanon members in which he claimed, We're not going to mess with the old-time, turn-the-other-cheek religious postures. Our religious posture is, don't mess with us, you can get killed dead, literally dead. I am quite willing to break some lawyer's legs and next break his wife's legs and threaten to cut their child's arm off. That is the end of that lawyer. In another recording, Charles and other members could be heard discussing an arsenal of guns and a holy war. The authorities were ready to bring in Charles E. Diedrich, but he was nowhere to be found. They finally located him on the 2nd of November 1978 at a Lake Havasu property on the border of California and Arizona. They arrested the 65-year-old Charles, drunk in front of an empty bottle of Shivers Regal. An article in the New York Times in December 1978 noted that the California Attorney General's office had identified 18 incidents of physical assault that it believed to be linked to Synanon attacks, mostly on former members. It also listed some similarities between Synanon and the People's Temple. Drug-addicted people were many of the first members. Both promised a utopian community and communal living. Both used authoritarian leadership, hard labour, long meetings and frequent criticism to keep adherents loyal. Both split families and stockpiled arms. Both grew rapidly behind the enthusiastic support of political liberals. Rigid pursuit of non-violence was replaced by increasing paranoia over outside criticism and defection. And both sought to intimidate the press. The FBI file on Synanon also makes some comparisons to Scientology. There are other groups I'm familiar with that I see in there too. In 1979, the tiny Point Reyes Light received the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for their reporting on a group that most other publications were too scared to take on. And understandably so. Aside from huge libel suits, reporters from NBC and Time, amongst others, had been followed and intimidated by men who said they were from SCRAM, an acronym standing for the Synanon Committee for Responsible American Media. NBC staff were sent hundreds of threatening letters from Synanon members following a story they had run on the group in mid-1978. While in its early days, Synanon welcomed anyone in to check out the way they were operating, and were pretty open and transparent in that way. It was their later attitude of shutting down any form of criticism, as well as disallowing family members to see residents, that really pushed them into the secrecy criteria I used to characterise a cult for this podcast. In July 1980, Charles Diedrich, Lance Kenton and Joseph Musico pleaded no contest to charges of conspiracy to commit murder. Lance and Joseph would spend time in jail, but Paul Morantz requested leniency for them. He felt they certainly committed the crime and should be punished, but that the act was mitigated by Synanon's brainwashing. He said many of his friends were now ex-Synanon members he'd assisted in escaping, who could otherwise have ended up his attackers. The main thing was they needed to be out of Synanon, which became a condition of their probation after a year behind bars. 
Charles only received five years probation and a $5,000 fine, avoiding jail time due to claims of ill health. Part of his probation was that he stepped down from his role at Synanon and no longer be involved in the running of the organisation. His daughter J.D. stepped up in his place. Lance Kenton would go on to work for the actor Charlie Sheen, and Joseph Musico would re-enter the drugs business and be thrown off a building to his death by a rival drug dealer. In March of 1981, 17 Synanon members faced charges of kidnapping and assault. In another libel case that Synanon had brought against the American Broadcasting Company, former member Bernard Kolb had alleged more than a dozen incidents of violence against ex-members that he was aware of. This case came in part from his testimony, and related to one particular incident in January of 1978, where former member Kim Myers was held against his will, and badly beaten under suspicion of leaking information about the group to Time magazine. Synanon finally lost its tax-exempt status in 1982, and sued to recover it. A 1984 ruling went against them, with Judge Charles Ritchie commenting on, quote, a chilling portrait of an organisation that advocates terror and violence. Further court cases resulted in more Synanon tape recordings coming out, and in 1985, nine members including Charles's daughter J.D. were indicted by a grand jury on federal charges of conspiring to obstruct justice by destroying evidence from March 1979 onwards, when the IRS was auditing the organisation. On August 1st, 1987, five members pled guilty to a charge of contempt, including J.D. Diedrich. Disturbingly, Charles was still receiving a hefty salary throughout this time, and Synanon continued to bring in plenty of revenue and operate some of its programs. Philip Andrew Lewis, the artist and art professor mentioned earlier in this episode, was held at Synanon in the 1980s. He'd been smoking some pot and experimenting with LSD as a teenager when his mother told him she was taking him to see a psychologist, but took him to Synanon instead. He told the San Francisco Chronicle that during his time there, he didn't see any natural light, his head was shaved, he was deprived of food and experienced enforced silences. Philip escaped after two years, and his ongoing art research project Synonym which showed at Headland Centre for the Arts in Sausalito earlier this year, is a response to his time there. Synanon finally fully collapsed in 1991, when it was forced to pay back taxes via the sale or repossession of its various properties. Charles Diedrich suffered a series of strokes and passed away on the 5th of March 1997 from cardiorespiratory failure. He was still married to his fourth wife, Ginny, and had three grandchildren. He was 17 days shy of his 84th birthday. Paul Morantz told Los Angeles magazine in April this year that a blood disease he suffers from today could be related to his snake bite in 1978. He said to journalist Hillel Aaron, I'm going to set the record for the longest murder ever. Synanon does still operate in Germany, in two Berlin locations. The German website's About Us page has brief mention of Chuck Diedrich, but he's not too prominent elsewhere that I could see. That organisation still seems to follow the three rules, no drugs or alcohol, no violence or threat of violence, and no smoking. An article entitled The Cult That Spawned the Tough Love Teen Industry for Mother Jones claimed in 2007 that no fewer than 50 programs can trace their treatment philosophy directly or indirectly to Synanon. Others claim this number is in the thousands. These include Straight Inc., 
closed in 1993 after a number of lawsuits relating to abuse and kidnapping. The Seed, accused of brainwashing techniques akin to those used in totalitarian societies. Kids Inc., which paid out $10 million to settle child abuse lawsuits, and various wilderness programs that shut down after children died as a result of their tough love approaches. The New York Times published an article earlier this month, September 2018, about the Family Foundation School and the alarming rate of deaths amongst its former residents. That school was set up in the 1980s and shut down in 2014. It accepted high-risk youth and so suggests that any subsequent deaths by suicide or drug overdose are a result of problems already in existence with the kids when they entered. Journalist Michael Wilson spoke with former staff member Lillian Becker, who told him about something called table topics that came up during meals, whereby students would bring up the infractions of their classmates. Quote, Susie would get up and say, I want to bring up John, Ms. Becker said. John had to stand up. Now it's time to basically break this kid down. I saw him flirting, something like that. What regularly followed was a tirade of mocking and scolding from other students and adults, she said. The staff would chop this kid up. End quote. Sound familiar? It's unclear how many attended this school, but reports in the 80s and 90s would put the total student population in the tens rather than the hundreds. The number of deaths from alumni from the Family Foundation School passed 100 this July, all under the age of 50. Richard Offshare wrote a paper contending that Synanon's evolution was deliberate from the outset. In his abstract, he sees the three phases of Synanon as, quote, strategic moves of organisational management to expand, solidify and consolidate control of the group. It's true that from the start, Charles was dishonest in his claims about the success rates of the treatment program, which has to put his original motives into question. It's definitely interesting to consider how much each shift was planned, and how much was the group taking advantage of the opportunities available at the time. Charles was certainly agile at changing things up until, perhaps, his paranoia got the best of him, and his confidence in his own power caused him to trample too many laws. Though the hard work of journalists and of people like Paul Morantz can't be understated in curtailing the violence and damage Charles and his followers were inflicting on others. As for Paul Morantz himself, he says he once held the belief that Synanon's brainwashing methods were the ideal cure for some people, but at what cost? Nowadays his thinking is the positive that Synanon really offered in its early days to addicted people was a supportive community to turn to when the cravings hit, and the taking away of their worries about housing and an occupation. The rest of their setup was about control and manipulation for the benefit of Charles E. Diedrich and his chosen few. Quote, Even if the system had worked, the price was too high. Free will. While brainwashing might be a form of keeping a person from drugs, leaving all decision-making to the masters was a recipe for disaster. Eventually, the future could only be Orwellian. It is estimated that 15 to 20,000 people made their way through various Synanon treatment programs and residencies during its existence. In 1982, 
Charles Diedrich told a federal district court in Washington, D.C., quote, I don't know how to cure a dope fiend. I never did. has written two books about this subject, From Miracle to Madness, The True Story of Charles Diedrich and Synanon, and Escape, My Lifelong War Against Cults. From his notes, he's made a huge amount of information about Synanon available to the public, and I found his website, paulmorantz.com, to be a valuable resource in researching this episode. If you'd like to read more detail about all kinds of aspects of the organisation, his work is a good place to start. I'd also like to especially mention Richard Offshay and the Point Rays Light's work under David and Kathy Mitchell, Matt Novak's work for Gizmodo, and Hillel Aaron's piece for Los Angeles Magazine as key sources of information. If you'd like to discuss Synanon, sects in general, or anything else about the podcast, we've just set up a private Facebook group for this purpose. I'll be there to give you any extra insight I have from my research, and I'd love to chat further with you. You can find the group via ltaspod.com forward slash Facebook group, or via our Facebook page. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au. And you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs help right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Let's Talk About Sects is researched and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. All information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com. Please consider giving us a quick review, following us on Facebook and Twitter, and supporting the creation of this independent podcast at patreon.com forward slash ltaspod, or by buying some merch at ltaspod.com. Thanks for listening, and hope you can join me again next episode. Over 40 years, Hooker Chemical Corporation dumped over 80 toxic substances at Love Canal. There is substantial medical opinion that continued use of the Dalcon Shield may pose a serious personal health hazard. Oh, I hate all of you! I hate you! He's accused of orchestrating the largest lotto scam ever. In opening arguments, Prosecutor Jerry Miller portrayed Baker as a greedy, money-hungry showman who practiced fraud disguised as religion. Martin Shkreli has become the most hated man in America. My kid's not here! He's dead! Because of him! He ruined my life! Swindled is a podcast that uses narrative storytelling, archival audio, and immersive soundscapes to explore true cases of white-collar crime and corporate greed. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you may get your podcasts. 
For more information about the show, visit our website at swindledpodcasts.com. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.